Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. It's no secret that some people have a hard time getting along with others. I mean, you see it every day, especially if you're on social media. I mean, check out some of those comments. But why are we like this? I mean, how can we just learn to just play nice and get along? I've got social scientist David Livermore with me today, and he's going to explain how cultural intelligence can be used to get along with others. I mean, geez, it's about time. And he tells us how we can respect others' backgrounds and beliefs and navigate polarizing conversations without having to conform. Now, pay attention to a lot of the deep talk that we have. He's got some great examples. And if you haven't picked up his book, by the end of this podcast, I'm going to be surprised. Pick it up. Read it. I'm halfway through. I love it. This is an amazing conversation that everyone should listen to. Enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Brilliant Thoughts with Success Magazine. I've got David Livermore with me. He has a lot of experience on cultural intelligence, the diversity that we have everywhere, and better how do we adapt and play well with others? I think that that we can all relate with at every part of our life, whether it's business or just, just living life. David, welcome to the show, buddy. Thanks, Tristan. I'm excited, man, because uh, I get to talk to a lot of high achievers in different different categories. And one thing that always comes up are relationships and how how people have been able to grow whatever it is they grew, whether it's them being amazing on social media, businesses, families, it doesn't matter. It's all about being able to get along with someone else. And you have this great book called Digital Diverse and Divide Everyone. Go pick it up. It's an Amazon. Or what's the best website to pick it up at, David? Do you have one? Or Yeah, I mean, that's the easiest place to go, but available at all the normal outlets. How, how about that? <laughs> That's even better. I like that. And you had a previous book called Cultural Intelligence. I want to start there. Yeah. Because you kind of lay the groundwork there with kind of a, a formula. And I want to talk about that because that was the very first time I, I had ever been exposed to cultural intelligence. Tell me about that. Yeah. So... Clearly, you and, and your audience are very familiar with IQ and probably even EQ. And this is just another form of intelligence. We've actually researched it as that because to your point in the lead-in, increasingly all of us, whether we're solo entrepreneurs or inside a Fortune 500 company, are having to work with a lot of people different than us. So it, it picks up where emotional intelligence leaves off, which, of course, is the ability to be aware of your own emotional state and kind of monitor that as well as pick it up on other people and says, but what if you're interacting with someone who has a very different background than you and not looking you in the eye or not responding to a question might mean something very different than it does for you. Mm. So, so cultural intelligence is just helping you get along with people who are different than you. I like that, man. 
And, and I think it's easily overlooked. So I love that you you gave it a name because it helps us categorize it and identify it better as we're as we're going through it. Yeah. And I mean, if you'll let me geek out for a Please, second. Dude, that's, that's what we're here for, man. I love this. <laughs> geek out. Go. Yeah. I mean, so so we not only gave it a name, but we we have designed a whole instrument that, you know, we took like 10 years as classic academics doing and then finally rolled it out and commercialized it. But yeah, we have an instrument that's used from everyone from Harvard Business School to Google um, to say, how do you actually assess whether or not people have this skill? And then you know, more importantly, once you find out where you are on it, what do you do about it? And and the good news about cultural intelligence is it's not like either you're born with it or you are. It's it's a learned skill set. It's a learned capability. So figure out where you're strong, figure out where you could benefit from growing a little bit. And then how do you use some practical tools and strategies to to improve the way you do it? Where do you find that most people have a challenge with when it comes to cultural intelligence? It depends. That's often my answer to, to everything. But it, so we have four quadrants in the cultural intelligence model and assessment, drive, knowledge, strategy, and action. I would say the strategy piece is the place where business leaders in particular get tripped up because on the drive, like it kind of, you know, is sort of common sense that you got to at least have an interest in people who come from different backgrounds or a different consumer market if you're going to be effective. Knowledge, I mean, we have ad nauseum information about differences. Here's what you need to know about millennials, and here's what you need to understand about the African-American story or your Chinese counterparts. But then knowing what the hell to actually do with that, the strategy piece, like how how do I engage with my African-American counterpart in a way that's respectful and sees their difference, but doesn't start to go, what's your opinion on Black Lives Matter? Like as, as if we should just suddenly like call them out on that kind of thing. So mm. it's that strategy piece that I think trips most of us up. I, I, yeah, I could see that because we don't know where to start because to some of us, a lot of us haven't really been exposed to other cultures and in some cases other races. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I grew up in New York, but I was, you know, one of the more diverse cities in the world, but I was insulated with a bunch of other middle-class white kids like me. So just because you live in a cosmopolitan area, your point can still be true. You might not really be exposed to people with different backgrounds other than walking down the street or serving you at the coffee shop. Hmm. How do we adapt quicker than if, if we, if we're going through this and we're like, damn, I'm not, uh, I'm not as diverse as I thought I was. How can I adapt quicker as a leader to be able to motivate the people that I'm leading that are there from all different parts of life? How, how can I do this? I think part is just being willing to say, I don't really understand people from your background. Help me get it. Or what can I read to understand, et cetera. So just acknowledging that it's okay to admit that I've never worked with someone who comes from your arena. Maybe it's, I've never worked with a Muslim before. And so I'll, I've seen all the stereotypical images and I don't want to presume that on you, but frankly, I'm I'm not sure what is appropriate. Should I shake your hand? Should we go out for drinks, et cetera? So ask um, and, you know, do, do our own work to kind of get educated on it. I, I think that's at least one way of how we kind of streamline getting up to to the task of adapting. Okay. All right. I like that. I, I think that's 
That's a great place to start. It kind of treats it like a lot of the things that entrepreneurs, solopreneurs face, which is if you don't know, well, start with the very beginning, which is I don't understand. So get to the mm. get to the understanding part of it. I like that. Now, in your in your new book, Digital, Diverse and Divided, uh, I'm looking at it right now on Amazon and I just put it on my cart. Uh, it says here here's the here's the sub part to it, which I love, by the way. <laughs> How to talk to racists, compete with robots, and overcome polarization. I want to start with how should I respond to a racist comment, dude? Because I see it. I run. So here, a little bit about me. I run the largest community for real estate agents in the world. Our Facebook group alone has 150,000 people in it. Wow. So you, you know sometimes just in the group. Right. We're going to get some crazy stuff. How how do we respond to racist comments? Well, the the scenario you just played is perhaps the most challenging because it's a digital environment and that's where it just escalates really really fast. Somebody makes a racist comment and because it's your network and leadership, I think there's a different responsibility on you than maybe another member to actually say like, "Hey, hang on." We've got some some protocols here. That's unacceptable behavior. But if if I think about it more broadly for your your network at large, I, for the most part, I don't think it's to say, Kristen, you're a racist, because rarely does that go down well. You know, that, I, I never hear someone go, "Oh, really? You're right." Like, let's talk. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think it's ever happened, right? And I mean, there's there's times with buddies that I I might say that, like, "Oh, that is so racist. Shut up." But in a professional environment, I would say the starting point is to find out um, are they even open to the conversation. So I, I might just start when I hear a racist comment with, "Hey, would you be open to a different perspective on what mm. you just said there?" And, you know, rarely, unless they're a total ass, are they going to be like, hell no. And so that at least kind of primes them to do it. And frankly, I'm almost less concerned about the over-the-top white supremacist comments that are, are made on social media. I mean, of course, let me be clear, I'm, I'm concerned about those, but that's kind of the fringe. Yeah. It's more an experience that I had not too long ago with a professional colleague of mine, just maybe six weeks ago, mm-hmm. who was telling me a story about a mutual friend of ours and said, yeah, he, he just married this woman from South Africa. She's black, but she's beautiful. And then he goes on and I'm like, whoa, oh, I see that. And so and he's one of the most compassionate. He would be the first to say, I don't have a racist bone in my body. And so I let him go on for a couple more minutes in the story. And I'm like, did you hear what you just said? And he's like, what? And I said it back to him. He's like, oh no. Like, am I am I the next example in your next book? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, in no, but you are on Tristan's are. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, he responded as you might expect most of us. Initially, he was defensive. Oh, give me a break. You know, you're picking apart my words. I'm like, I'm not here to attack you. It's just, did you hear that black butt beautiful? I mean, that's not even subconscious. That's kind of in your face. I think it's you know, we find those few trusted relationships where we can actually get them to take pause on it. And that kind of links back to our work in cultural intelligence that says, you know, conversation and interaction is often the best way to do this, rather than putting out one more tweet and thinking that that's going to actually reduce polarization or, or racism. Interesting. Oh, man, I, I do find that in, in different, in vocabulary. I find that that happens here and there. 
And I think the the solution to a large part of that is is just going in into these different cultures as much as you can to to be exposed to it a lot more and just live in it. But it's it's not something a lot of us are able to do all the time. So it makes it makes sense. I like I like your approach. Now, when we're looking at something a little bit more challenging, when it's not as clear, because uh, racism, it's like, yes, no, sometimes it's in the middle, I don't know. It's sometimes it's just a, a different perspective. And right. And sometimes it's not necessarily so obvious. But but we spot it. And how do we approach that? How do we have conversations like that with people that maybe have perspectives that can damage a culture? I, I appreciate that point, because there is a difference when it's that's clear racism and we need to call it out and not be like, well, that's your way of seeing it. Here's my way of seeing it. But what about in these more blurry gray areas? And I mean, name the week, right? Like is, was January 6th a bad deal or not? You know, should we be forgiving student debt? I mean, it, it's <laughs> everything the, right now, right? Everything just, I mean, I'm kind of in the evergreen business, right? Let's talk about entrepreneurship. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, and just to, to kind of take that further. I, I thought COVID would be the opportunity for us to finally unite around something because how are we going to be polarized around a global pandemic? And, you know, to hell with that, because suddenly now we know what political affiliation you have based upon whether you got vaccinated or wear a mask, you know, <laughs> tell me about it. So I guess I'd, I'd come back to that same somewhat simplistic, but question that I used a couple minutes ago, when, when somebody voices another perspective, you know, saying, would you be open to hearing a different point of view? But then, of course, we have to be willing to do that as well. And, you know, a colleague of mine, person that a lot of your listeners are very familiar with, Adam Grant. Mm. I mean, one of the things Adam says a lot is argue like you're right, listen like you're wrong. And I, I really like that simplicity of let's engage in these conversations to say, I'm not going to give you some kind of vanilla like interpretation. Here's what I believe and here's what I believe strongly. Now, let me shut up and listen to what you believe. And then maybe even trying to repeat back to each other the other person's perspective. Like what I heard you say, Tristan, was no, that wasn't what I said until we kind of get to a mutual understanding. But from from the sake of business, you know, I, I know your penchant and I think mine as well as how do we get to action? Like what are real solutions to it? I think we, we have to kind of get rise up above a bit the polarizing perspective and ask what's the shared outcome we're trying to get to? And then how do we not get so trapped up in these debates over things that we're never going to agree on instead say, okay, but we can agree. We're trying to get more market share in, you know, multifamily real estate deals or whatever it is. Like how do we kind of you not, stifle the different perspectives, but also not get trapped by them and instead kind of focus on a, a shared outcome that we're trying to get to. Dude, yes. All right. So you you brought up some I'm I'm processing listen like you're wrong because I think a lot of true great leaders, right? Because there's considered great leaders by by some, but we've we see that over over a longer period of time, history then determines that they weren't great leaders, right? Uh, but at the time, they certainly seem like it by a few. Hmm. And and I think that's a 
an amazing quality to have for a great leader. Probably one of the biggest. I, I didn't realize. Listen like you're wrong, right? Because it gives you the opportunity to be able to look at different perspectives. Where I think the cultural intelligence piece comes in is then if you're dealing with a culture that has a high regard for the position of leadership, then they're going to be really reticent to tell the leader that they're wrong. So you have to really use your cultural intelligence to go, how would I get input that's going to tell the boss, I think you're whacked. Um, and even, I mean, hey, let's talk about for sure in a hierarchical culture like the Middle East or many parts of Asia, that's going to be true. But even, even here, I mean, you're not even a tech company going to be a junior employee that's too quick to say to a very senior leader, I think you're wrong. You know, so you have to kind of use some deft uh, leadership skill to say, challenge me, tear this apart. I mean, one thing that I sometimes do with that is if I'm, I'm leading a group of individuals who I know are not going to want to say to Mr. PhD, you're just flat wrong, at least to my face. Mm -hmm. So I might just reframe it a bit and say, Okay, you, you might not say this, but what might some other people raise as potential criticisms to what I've just voiced? So it allows them to kind of depersonalize a little. And then that's kind of my attempt to listen like I'm wrong to say, you know, that, well, I'm not saying this, Dave, but, you know, I think there could be some in my community who would view that what you just said was blah, blah, blah. I like that a lot. And I think the challenge with what we're seeing right now with all the division, like you said, I thought the pandemic would really bring us closer together, right? And yet it just it just created a bigger chasm, which is nuts. But at, at the risk of patronizing, I think it's why the kind of work that you're leading is so important because to me, the huge gap there was leadership, you know, and I'm I'm not going political there because both parties were complicit in this. But where was the leadership to use this shared problem to bring us together instead of actually using it as a wedge to further push us apart? So, and I'm not, we're not going to get Washington to change on that, but grassroots entrepreneurs in our own circles of influence, we can start to be like, hey. There are genuine reasons why some people are concerned about getting a vaccine, and there are genuine reasons why to believe the vaccine is useful. So can we allow space to have that conversation rather than immediately saying you're an idiot or you deserve to die from COVID or whatever, you know, and kind of take down the dehumanizing attack and actually focus on solutions? Mm -hmm. Dude, that, that makes me think a little bit more on on just the human aspect uh, of what we, of how we think and process. Mm. I, I feel like we categorize too quickly, which doesn't allow us to live in the, in that level of uncertainty enough yes. to be able to figure things out. Yeah. It's, it's a huge part of what came up in the research for this most recent book is that, you know, the vast majority of the U S uh, population is not on the fringe extremes, but it's not that we all agree in the middle either. Like, yeah. you know, what do you think about immigration? What do you think about student debt, et cetera? But for almost all of us, there's nuance to what we believe, you know? And I've I've found that myself. I've, I've assumed someone would have thought a certain way about the vaccine based upon how they view Trump, only to find out, oh, you are vaccinated and you voted for Trump. Okay, so, you know, kind of to that whole point, there's we're all so complex and yet as you also noted our our impulse is to throw people into buckets of 
you live in Malibu, obviously, this is how you believe on this issue, you know? Yeah, everybody's like, okay, you live in Malibu, that means you vote this way, you right. vote like this. It's, I just experienced that because I just came back from speaking in Hawaii. So I told somebody, yeah, I'm from Malibu. And then they just went off. It's like, you know, you really need to fix California. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's great. I just listen. Uh, well, and I would just tell you, I, I just moved to California from the Midwest, and I'm getting it on both sides. You know, <laughs> Why would you move to like, California? Right, exactly. Isn't everybody moving out? And then here, like, oh, thank God you got away from those crazy people, you know? So, <laughs> so good. You can't win either way, man. You can't win. Right, right. Uh, I have a question about assumptions and and how it plays into the decisions that we make and how it plays into this, this diversity and division. How, how have you seen people be able to curb their assumptions so that they can wait a little longer before deciding what this actually is? In part, it's through using a skill that we often teach as a part of the cultural intelligence work called perspective taking. To what degree can you genuinely understand the perspective of the other person before you decide right versus wrong? Let me give you a, a quick example. Adam Galinsky out of Columbia has done some of the best research on perspective taking, and he had a group of his students look at a photo of an elderly gentleman sitting on a street corner in New York, and he asked them, just describe this man's perspective. And so he divides them into three groups. First group, all he says is, describe this man's perspective, no other parameters. Second group, he says, describe this man's perspective, but avoid negative stereotypes. Don't, don't use negative things about being an old dithering man, et cetera. Third group, he says, I want you to imagine you are the man and write it in the first person. Mm. What did he find? First group, for whom he gave no parameters, the control group. I mean, they did say, okay, oh, the poor man is lonely. He's probably losing his mind, you know, failing health. Second group, it was fairly clinical, you know, okay. He, each day he sits on this corner. He's lived a lot of life. Third group wrote the most positive descriptions of this man's view of life, his sage wisdom, etc. So I think part of how we challenge assumptions is to even, if we go back to, I keep talking about vaccines, some ways that feels like really ancient history now, right? <laughs> like we're so, so well into the, the pandemic, et cetera. But before I'm just quick to say that that person is just sheeple drinking the Kool-Aid, have I genuinely understood your resistance to getting the vaccine or you being first in line to getting the vaccine before I just automatically make assumptions about it? So mm. It's relatively simple. It's not rocket science, but it's one of those skills as leaders that can really slow down that rushing to assumption. Then build that into anything else. I keep using these political issues, but someone's reluctant to have us go fully remote. Well, let, how, have I really understood what's behind that before just saying, oh, they're old school and you know, they they have a lease on an office that they want to make sure that they, but well, do I know why they have that perspective? Dude, I I like that a lot. And yes, I say dude a lot. That's Malibu. That is an assumption. That is correct. <laughs> um, I'm I'm hearing that empathy is the key here mm. because you, you you mentioned that in this what was it Adam Galinsky's research he broke them down to three and the the first person one seemed to be the most empathetic and changed it. Yeah, that that's really good insight. 
that the only caution I would give is I do quite a bit of work with the military arena and they talk about, you know, how do we do perspective taking with the enemy, but they don't necessarily want to empathize with the enemy. And you, you could even say that in sales, like if you take empathy too far, do you lose your business outcome in the midst of feeling so much on behalf of the client, et cetera? So good point. Good point. You kind of lose that edge, right? Yeah. But for the most part, I would wholeheartedly agree that what we're after is, can I at least see this through your eyes? Nice. All right. It sounds also, if just from what you're saying, the questions, the more questions you ask, the more you beat out the assumptions, right? The deeper you go. Yeah. And I, I guess the other thing I would qualify is as I gain more information through those questions and that perspective taking, I may still end up evaluating that I think you're wrong and I think that's very dysfunctional, but at least now we've tested our assumptions or we put them at bay before we just immediately go. Because I'm not I'm not the culture guy who's like, it's all relative, you know, you think it's okay to do a terrorist act. I don't like, no. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but at least now we've kind of used a more methodical reason-based approach before just quickly writing someone off you kind of did the scientific method on it it's kind of cool man imagine that that's so that's so good i like that let's talk about competing with robots now because what we're seeing i come from a real estate background so that that's our side and we're we are seeing some tech come in and and then start helping us through machine learning so we don't have to hire inside sales agents or or outsourced people to make calls because the AI is taking over on texts and in some cases rerouting certain things. How do we compete with robots, specifically artificial intelligence? Well, it's, it's a real issue for us to keep grappling with because there's no question robots are going to outdo us on complex cognitive tasks and we see that again and again so i'm certainly not mr anti-ai that that would be putting our head in the sand but i mean your example and you obviously know this world way better than i do is a classic example of robots can only take us so far the human agility the kinds of issues that you and i have been talking about the last half hour you can't program a robot to do that and we know what it's like to be you know, have an algorithm presume on us in social media that this is the way we must think like, no, don't start filling my feed with that BS. And if I can just kind of reflect on your question for a moment as a recent consumer of real estate. Oh, yeah, you just moved just to San Diego. Right, you know, so in very volatile real estate market and, you know, I thought what was going to happen was like sell overnight in Michigan because our market was strong there too and be in all kinds of nutty bidding wars here. And then the whole thing flipped around the other direction. And But the bigger point that I'm trying to make is to my realtors on both sides, I sometimes said to them, do you ever feel like you're a therapist? Because they'd be like <laughs> talking me off the ledge and, you know, like, you know, I, I know you think you lost money, Dave, but you just lost money in your head. Did you actually see what you made on this from when you originally purchased the home and said, so there was all this kind of like, if I had been getting an automated text, I would have been like, dude, you know, to, to, to use Tristan's language, you know, don't, don't give me some kind of program thing. So, I mean, that 
And I, I mean, again, you know this, especially in commercial real estate, way, way more than I could pretend to, but I just can't imagine that negotiation is something we're going to be able to outsource to AI. So let, let's let technology do what it's going to do far better. And, you know, frankly, I watched the difference. I won't name names, but the, the agent I worked with on one side of the transaction versus the other who knew how to use updated technology and the other one who it was still like, you know, setting is very kind of old school information. So use the AI to improve the process. But at the end of the day, I needed, you know, for, for us as individuals, I mean, it was a big transaction. I needed a human that could assure me, you know, that we were making a good choice and could help give us timely feedback. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the reassurance is the key, isn't it? Reassurance and, you know, years and years of wisdom and experience. You've graciously, you know, tapped into my world as social science, but I know what I don't know. And I I don't know real estate. So I need guys like you and your network to help me give reassurance based upon expertise rather than a friend who might call me up like, ah, it'll all work out. <laughs> yeah, great. Thanks for that. You know, but well, I, so I have a question. It goes along with with what we're talking about with your book. All right, digital, diverse, and divided. And and it also goes a little bit with kind of what just happened in real estate with you. What was there ever a point where where you didn't agree with either of the agents and and they were on the other end, but you're like, you know what, let's just get this done where it's like not agree, not disagree. Let's just get it done. And how did you get to that stage? Because I think that persuasion is key in in having so much diversity, right? As a whole, and I'm just picking a real estate transaction, right? Well, it's it's a great example. <laughs> if it had been two weeks ago, it would have struck a raw nerve. Now that we've closed <laughs> on both properties, I'm, I don't want to talk about that. Tristan. I'm not. Yeah, this is a safe place. I'm not triggered now. But I think what's so rich about that metaphor is. You know, in order to engage in polarizing conversations or negotiation deals, you have to have a strong sense of self identity and purpose. I had to know what was core to my wife and me before we could engage in it. So we knew before we even started getting the outside counsel, this is what we need to walk away with. This is what our financial reality is. And the very thing you said happened, if if anything, I actually felt like one of our agents was too passive. Well, just let me know what you want to do. I'm like, but I want you to give me direction on it. And actually, one of the things that was said, we decided to disagree with and say, hear what you're saying, but no, we're going to move this way. But now at least I have the input so that it almost again is back to that argue like you're right, listen like you're wrong. Like I, there has to whether it's a real estate transaction, a massive business deal um, between companies or engaging in polarization, I'm not interested in some kind of milk toast. Let's just all come together and we don't have opinions. Like bring me everything you have to the party and then be open, you know, hold an open hand and go, wow, I really have that wrong. Um, and you can't get there if you don't put it all out there. That's the thing, right? Yeah, I mean, a, a realm that you know so well, I'm sure. I mean, I on the selling side, I had given a number that we are absolutely not going to go below this. <laughs> you know? Interesting. Let's just say that that target shifted as interest rates started to climb for buyers. And um, so, yeah, the, the, the give and take is what was really valuable for me in mm. that 
that interchange. Well, man, since this is fresh on your mind, I have more questions because the book kind of goes into this and into, I mean, we can go into any part of business, politics, any, your book can cover ranges of things. So I want to ask you on the political arena that covers social media, because it's so polarized on social, right? And then I want to get into your, your last emotional transaction here, right? The real estate. I want to better understand the fatigue that that we get, the emotional fatigue that happens. Let's go on the political arena first. How how can we deal with this better when when I I'm just going to tell you when I when I get into some things because we have such a lar- large community, there are some days that are just like, whoa, this is a little too much. I don't I don't think I should be commenting at this point because I'm just going to say something stupid, right? Or or just get into an argument with somebody. How is it that that we can step away from these polarizing conversations? Couple thoughts. I, I mentioned when I was talking about our cultural intelligence work that one of the first competencies we measure is what's your drive, your motivation, and what you're getting at is that piece of there's there's days that I know I do not have the mental energy to do this in any kind of culturally intelligent yes. way. The other piece, though, that actually I was not conscious of as much as I should have been when I first wrote the book and I, I circulated an early manuscript to a very diverse audience. And I had a number of people of color who reacted against this whole idea of how to talk to racists. And it's kind of to this whole piece of fatigue that you're talking about. Like, it's all I can do to get up in the morning and, you know, not worry that my 18 year old black son is not going to get, you know, pulled over and shot or something. And now I also have to call out racism every time I see it. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, I never like assumed you have to do this. And so in the final version of the book, almost ad nauseum, I keep coming back to this is opt in and all the more so if you're part of a marginalized group, far be it for me as a white cisgendered straight guy to say, oh, and make sure, you know, African-Americans, you're, you're calling out racists, et cetera. But for people like me, I think I even when it's exhausting, I think I need to like lean in a little bit more than I would ask my, my friends of color or my trans friends or something like that. So I'm kind of talking out of both sides of mouth. I'm saying yeah, yeah. It, it is wise that we have to regulate it and go today might not be the day but on the other hand i'm not going to give a pass as quickly to someone like me because frankly i could walk away from it and say i don't ever have to really think about this again other than like yeah there's some crazy people on social media but i can still live a pretty insulated life and i i do view it as my role to be an ally and a voice that's speaking up on these issues with especially my fellow white males and other individuals all right let's go deeper on today might not be the day. How do we show up better? And this may be going off a little bit on tangent, but I think you have the answer. How do we show up better daily so that we can be prepared to have these conversations? I think that is where it's not just waiting until it blows up and it's the extreme like KKK post or something that goes up. But how how do we, when someone says black but beautiful, call it out or you know somebody yesterday 
uh, used an expression to me, I'm a slave to my schedule. And I'm like, ah, you know, that that's, you know, and I'm not Mr. Like PC police who goes around like every time somebody say, I mean, the, the whole like master bedroom, primary bedroom, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Like I, I, I understand the importance. I think sometimes we get too caught up in it, but I do think it's those little things where we start to speak up. Maybe a, a more relevant example. I have a lot of friends of color and especially black americans who talked about in the days right after george floyd's murder what it was like to jump on a zoom call for work and everybody chit-chatting about what are you doing this weekend and what and like okay i'm still reeling from everything that's happening for me emotionally so i think part of showing up is not let's all go around and talk about how we feel about the george floyd thing like that that wouldn't be appropriate on a team's call but just letting them know hey i've been thinking about you and you know if if it's useful to talk about it i'd love to learn more it's, i think it's those kinds of way of just emotionally showing up and saying i i see you and and i understand this may have a different level of pain for you than it does for me got it emotional intelligence and cultural intelligence seem to be tied at the hip from what i'm hearing absolutely I mean, and say I'm going to make an academic geek out of you. I mean, the, the research finds there's all kinds of correlation. And sometimes people try and placate me and go, oh, why don't we just skip emotional intelligence and go right to cultural knowledge? Like, hell no, you got to start with, yeah. am I emotionally aware? Yeah, man, this is, that. that's why when you brought up empathy through that research, um, Adam, Adam Galinsky, it makes, it makes sense because they are, it's interesting that we had to get to emotional intelligence to get to cultural intelligence. I bet you, um, I'm not a betting person, but you know, just the phrase, I bet you that this grows in the next few years because I've read the emotional intelligence books um, the, the, by Harvard Business Review, put it together, all those great articles. I forgot the author right now, but this goes right into that, man. This is so key, I think. This helps us understand and move forward at, at different levels, whether it's personal or business, so that we can get along better. Because that's that's one thing that's it's just so apparent. It's like there's so much division. Yeah, and, and cultural intelligence is kind of emotional intelligence on steroids because you know I've I've talked to individuals who are, you know, doing real estate transaction with Chinese buyers and are totally inequipped, ill-equipped, sorry, to, to know how to engage in the negotiation process and what, what is going on and how do I read their behavior? Um, I mean, the, the number of times that I've, to, to switch business models, but the number of times I've had an Uber driver who just goes off with me talking to me about some kind of political issue. And I'm like, are, are they assuming I agree with them? So kind of to your point, like it just shows up in day-to-day -day interactions all day long. And yeah. in some ways, I mean, it, you're, you're so generous in terms of how you talk about our work. I mean, sometimes I, I'll wake up and be like, are we basically just teaching us how to do kindergarten again? Like how to get along? Like this is you are basic human behavior. We are right. And yet somehow we don't seem to have learned it in our forties and fifties. So, but you're breaking it down in a way that our generation can better understand it. I hope so. And, and I, I think, I think we've seen through, through different eras, right. Um, that every every era every cultural era operates differently and the one we're in right now 
I think this fits right into it where you're, you're actually breaking it down so people can better understand it because we're also dealing with other things that we've never dealt before with before because it's in our face more. Right. And that's, that's a big challenge, man. I have two daughters, 23 and 25 and uh, my 23 year old, you know, I don't think she would mind me saying has not really been adept at keeping up with news, but suddenly, you know, TikTok now she's engaging with me with the women, you know, ripping off their hijabs in Iran. I'm like, Grace, I'm so impressed you're following this. She's like, oh, it's all over TikTok. So, you know, that that's again, where I don't make social media the enemy. It it does whatever we (laughs) allow it to do. So there, there's good and bad that comes from it, but you're absolutely right. We're, we're in, that's, that's the digital part of the title of the book. We're living in a whole different terrain, and it's sort of impossible now to be insulated from these polarizing issues because they're constantly coming at us. It's also how we use it as well. It's exactly how we use it, and it's how the companies are leveraging the algorithms to use it. And, you know, yeah. So how do we, as, as people that are, that are using this technology, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, everything on the social side, I mean, the top five most visited websites, Google, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This is nuts, right? How do we prepare ourselves daily to be able to, to not be polarized by social media? How? One really simple thing is, do I have a diversity of viewpoints in my own feed? And, you know, it's probably less about Facebook and more Twitter, um, LinkedIn, et cetera. But, you know, that, that, that will help protect me from confirmation bias to see how somebody on the right versus somebody on the left is talking about the same issue. I like that, man. That, but that goes, that, that goes back to what you said. Uh, the whole Adam Grant quote, right? Mm. Uh, yeah. which is the, the the latter part of it. Listen. Right, listen like you're wrong, yes. right? Yeah. And I, I also think it's that thing we've been taught in human relationships or marriage counseling 101 or business partnership, like take a deep breath before you respond. And especially on social media, like, you know, the, it is, it, you noted this a bit ago when you talked about your massive Facebook group, uh, for real estate professionals, like it is the best thing to do to respond to this right now. I also talk to people to think about to just stop before they just put share on a meme and just ask, who are the people in my network and how are they going to feel based upon what I share with them? And that's not, again, about political correctness, just like, have I really stopped to think about what putting this message out says to people? And is it worth the way that that may cause them to go, oh, Wow, so that's that's what you believe. Mm. I mean, there's also I mean, this is not anything. Oh, that's unique. true, though. I was just going to say too, though. I mean, that there is the whole fact checking. I mean, I this is such a small example, but I was noticing yesterday, like there was a bunch circulating on the web of like this large sea creature moving along a street in allegedly Florida. And then somebody's like, this was actually from Chile about three years ago, you know, and everybody's like (laughs) reposting it. Like, look at this poor creature and who's down there to actually make sure that they're taking care of that. And that's not, there's plenty of devastation to talk about in Florida, but I mean, how many times has that happened? Where did you hear what this politician said? Well, actually that was four years ago. So 
That's true, man. So I think we just got to slow down the, the reptilian side of the brain and, you know, treat social media for what it is. It's it's an information source, but we're not going to largely overcome polarization on, on social media. It's going to be through conversation and this whole argue like you're right, listen like you're wrong, engage in perspective taking. That's not going to happen through a little tweet that shows them what's up you know it's it's far more likely to happen over coffee um, yeah it's the one-on-one -on -one conversations that that you mentioned this where you go in and you say hey here here it is as much as i have here it is here it is now that i've told you all this i'm listening i'm just going to shut up and listen i think that's mm -hmm. where it happens and so hard especially if you're in a leadership role you're used to being the one telling not listening yeah man that's true. Have you gotten anyone saying to you that this cultural intelligence thing is very woke? Oh, yeah. That's interesting because I was I was just going through this when you mentioned the meme thing. I was like, yeah, I bet you somebody's going to say that. How have you responded to that? Like, like, uh, David, you're woke, dude. This is this is this is garbage. By the way, I don't think that I think this is amazing. OK, I mean, <clears throat> one of my first. Well, my. <laughs> What I wish I said or my real response? <laughs> well, I want to know your real response first. I mean, it, of course, defensive and like, what does that even mean? But, you know, my, my more measured response is, well, tell me what you mean by woke, because usually they don't even know what woke means or don't know what critical race theory means. And, you know, I think the technical definition of woke is someone who's awakened to injustice. Bring it on. I'll gladly be woke if you want me to be that. But no, I don't want the political baggage that goes with assuming that it's there um so it, for sure i've heard that a lot especially from people in who knew me in different eras of my life and whoa you've gone fully woke and you're drinking the kool-aid etc you moved to california uh, oh crap i didn't even i didn't piece that together until now exactly no i, I mean that's not a joke that has been said like oh this now all lines up like really you know? never mind that i'm surrounded by military bases and u.s flags here in san diego but regardless yeah. um i i actually what i anticipated more and have not had as much of but it'll probably still come as what's a white guy doing talking about diversity like really we need to be listening to mm. a white guy talking about that and i I actually think that's a fair pushback. The woke one's just kind of like, well, have you actually spent time listening to what I say? Because I'm just as hard on the left in this book as I am the right in just terms of like co-opting opportunity to polarize people rather than bring us together. Mm -hmm. On the, you know, what's a white guy doing? I, I start off with saying, you're right to be skeptical. I don't have the lived experience of experiencing discrimination and bias and you know i know what it is to get preferential treatment as i travel around the world because of the color of my skin and my my gender but i also don't think it's fair if we come back to your fatiguing question to put the burden solely on people of color of well let, let's turn to them and ask them what we should do in the midst of this like i i can get away with saying some things to other dudes who look like me that tends to be more quickly written off if it's you know a black female that's saying it or something so that doesn't undermine the fact that my perspective is more research-based and comes at it from an external so i don't pretend like no no i know what it's like like it's it's one piece of it that has to be supplemented by those with lived experience but 
my hope is that I can be at least a part of the solution alongside of our brothers and sisters who, you know, have much more direct experience in living this world. I think this is a great base to start off of and then and then add those experiences through through different cultures. That's why I love this, man. Because that's the other challenge, right? Because you also can't assume that just because someone has the lived experience, and there's there's many people of color who are frustrated by that, invited to apply for the diversity leader role mm-hmm. because they're a person of color. And go, you know, I haven't. I yes, I've experienced diversity, but yeah. you know, I'm in marketing. I've got a 20 year career in marketing. Why am I applying for this role? So. Yeah, I, I hope that together the baseline of the research and the theoretical models together with the experience can actually guide us to to overcome these polarizing issues. Nice, man. How do you like San Diego so far? Love it. Yeah. And actually, I mean, I'm not just saying this to, you know, to be on brand, but part of what has pleasantly surprised me is it's pretty diverse politically in terms of what we've encountered. Probably no surprise to a guy like you living up the road in Malibu. But I think I too, that oh, Southern California, it's, you know, all leaning really far left. And I mean, we've already been engaged in some really rich conversations. I, for my wife and me, it was important that we be surrounded with people who have that. So that, that's one of the pieces. Obviously, the access to water and diversity and sunshine is all an added bonus too. The taxes and cost of living, not quite as much, but um, you know, that there's the, the tax to pay for the sunshine. Uh, <laughs> that's so true, man. All right. Where do people get your book besides Amazon? Do you have a website? Where would people follow you? Yeah, if you just go on davidlivermore.com, there's links to all the various sellers for the book, as well as my social media links. So uh, yeah, thanks for asking that. Would would welcome interacting with any fellow leaders around these topics. I see it, davidlivermore.com. I got what others are saying. Dan, you got Daniel Pink on here, man. Soon Ang too, nice. I like that. All right, so... Dave, thanks so much for being on. I appreciate you. Tristan, thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, buddy. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it. 